Good morning. How are we? Good. The ushers are coming to take the offering. If you are new here, just feel free. Let those baskets go past you. If this is your home church, then we're glad to receive from you according to how God has led you to give. So we are uh, going to wrap up our series in Isaiah. Did you bring your number two pencils and your scantrons for your Isaiah comprehension test today? No? Did that word not get out? That's what we're doing today? Some of you had panic flashbacks, you think, or some of you are like, I love tests. I was so good at those. Remember when that's how life went? Like just filling that Scantron bubble sheet. Yeah, I did not like those days. So let me tell you, here's what we're gonna kind of set our sights on today. I, I think it's good for us, having spent the last 11 months studying the book of Isaiah, to spend a little time reflecting. I, I didn't wanna just move past, sort of cover the last text and then, you know, right on to the next thing, which we can tend to do sometimes. What I wanted us to do is to spend a little time reflecting on how it is that God wants us to apply the truth that we've learned over the last 11 months. Now you know, I mean, James chapter one, verse 22, tells us to not just be hearers of the word, but if you're familiar with that text, it tells us to do what? To be doers of the word, right? And my prayer this week and uh, for you, for me, has been, God, would you show us how you want us to collectively, as a church family, to apply what we've learned? Um, you know, there's not much value in just learning facts about the book of Isaiah. It's, ne- it's not been our intention over the last 11 months to teach you interesting historical facts about what was going on in Isaiah's day or to teach you uh, certain thematic verses or even teach you something as important as all the places that Christ has shown up again and again throughout the book of Isaiah in chapter six and seven and nine and then again in 53 and 48 and, and just you know all the places where we saw that God has clearly revolved his whole plan for this world around the sending of his son into the world to redeem it. Now, if you, if you are just joining us for the first time, let me apologize in advance that you're gonna drink from a little bit of a fire hose because we're gonna kind of summarize what we've done over the last 11 months together. But at the end of our time, here's really kind of, I mean, brass tacks, right? Let me just get down to the bottom line. What I want is for us to spend a little time reflecting, and hopefully you'll do this even as we go through the sermon, and asking God the question, God, how do you want me to apply this? My assumption is that God has been teaching you something over the last 11 months. He certainly has been me, and I've been asking him, okay, if I've heard this and learned this or been reminded of these things from your word, then what must I do now? What must change in my life? What needs to be different? What frame of mind needs to be shifted or challenged? What assumption needs to be changed or challenged? And uh, I would assume that you have the same thing that God wants to do with you. And so at the end of our time together, we'll take, whether it's 30 seconds or a minute or or even three, four minutes, we'll kind of see how it plays out. Um, Just time to reflect and ask God that question together. God, what do you want me to do? And uh, you have paper, pen handy or your phone, you know, note, note section on your phone, whatever it may be. Let me remind us, I think it's always helpful in these moments, kind of at the end of a series in a book, to remind us why we do that. And if you're new to the church, then that will also hopefully help you kind of get a sense for who we are and the way we operate. Why do we take the time to work systematically all the way through a book like Isaiah? Uh, One, my assumption is how many of you might have said 11 months ago, and I said, we're going to study Isaiah, and that's an intimidating book. Right, that's a little, it's, it's prophecy. It was written thousands of years ago. It's confusing at points. There's a lot of simile and metaphor and symbolic language. I'm not even sure how, how to make heads or tails of it at some point. The, part of my hope has been to sort of help you get comfortable with God's word. I mean, really one of our ultimate goals as a church is that you would have a love affair with God's word. 
that you would understand the power of God's word, that you would understand its ability to transform and to change you. Uh, and so one of the reasons we work systematically through books of the Bible is so that we're not skipping the hard stuff, so that we're not just sort of saying the stuff that we like to say versus the stuff that God is wanting to communicate to us. All of God's word is God, is God breathed, and all of it speaks to us, and all of it is transformative. And I think we get this concept Generally enough, I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in with folks who have spoken about, in a negative sense, the transformative power of constant exposure to things like video games or uh, certain types of music or television or movies. Or, you've had these conversations, yes? You recognize like ex- constant exposure to certain things, it, it just changes us. It, it, it sort of gets into our hardwiring, into our DNA and the way we think. And what's interesting to me is how often Christians will talk about that in a negative sense, but fail to apply that same truth in a positive sense to God's word. Because if we did, we would be ravenous about our taking up of God's word every morning. Like we would be running to God's word every morning to open it and to see it because it has way more power to transform us and change us when we are exposed to it over a long period of time than does any video game. Right, you can play 20 hours of Fortnite a day and that will have an effect on your soul, which I would argue is not good, right? But it will pale in comparison to the, to the transformative power that God's word will have in your life if you will take seriously constant exposure to that word. Constant, serious exposure to God's word. And I don't just mean a cursory reading of it to sort of glean a little life lesson for the day and then move on out. I mean the kind of exposure to God's word that is constant and regular and serious and studied and thoughtful and meditative and, and that is your first habit every day. Do you know that that will absolutely change you? That's why we take our time to spend 11 months working through the book of Isaiah because we believe God's word transforms us when we are regularly exposed to it. And that's what we're after. We want to be more like Christ. And the only way for that to happen is for us to get our noses into his word. You know, I was, I was reminded recently of uh, the power of, of a constant sort of exposure to something, but, but really the power of not just giving a cursory reading of something, but really like an intentional and thoughtful reading of something. Not too long ago, I had a canker sore. You guys have all gotten those before. You get the Orogel, right? And, you know, you break that out and it kind of numbs it, helps it deal with it and everything. So I had the Orogel not too far removed from the canker sore. I also had a a wart on my arm. And so I got some Compound W. Now, interestingly enough, the the packaging for Compound W and the packaging for Orogel look almost identical. (laughs) And they sit in the same drawer in my home and so I, you know, woke up and the canker sore was bothering me and I took what I thought was Orogel and I put it on there and it stung like fire. And my lip never got numb. And I thought to myself, that's weird. So I put some more on. <laughs> and it hurt again and again, it didn't get numb. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I put it away and I did that, y'all, for three days. For three days, I put wart remover in my mouth without realizing that it was doing zero good. I mean, 
my gums started to bleed. And I thought to myself, there's something seriously wrong with this Origel. Like this is not, I've used this before and this product, I, it's faulty. I need to take it back to the store. So, until finally one day, I gave more than a cursory glance at the package and realized I had been putting wart remover in my mouth, at which point I debated, do I tell my wife what an idiot I am or do I, and get my stomach pumped or whatever needs to happen right now, or do I just figure out if I can survive three days worth of wart remover? I went with option B. I just figured I'll try and survive. I want my wife to respect me and think I'm not a complete moron. So anyway, when we talk about sort of the, the you know, long exposure to God's word and not just a cursory reading, right? What well, from now on will be called a compound W, reading of the word of God, right? Well, we want an aura gel reading of the word of God. So here's what we're gonna do today, right? As we come to the end of our time in Isaiah, that we've learned, we've learned the book of Isaiah is really a book about God, right? It's a book about his nature, about who he is. And the fact that who he, hit, who he is has implications for every person who's ever walked the planet, not just those who believe in him and follow him, but every person. So for instance, if you're here today and you are skeptical and you're searching and you're seeking out what is true and um, you know, maybe a friend invited you today and so you've joined us, one, so glad that you're here. Uh, one of the arguments of Isaiah that's gonna encounter you today is that whether you believe God exists or not, you could be uh, staunchly atheistic, right? Or perhaps just sort of agnostically skeptical. Regardless of your perception of God, the fact that God exists and is who he is, the argument of Isaiah is that that has an implication for you. That all people are called to respond to God in a certain way because he exists and because he is who he is. Now we can divide uh, the, the attributes of God that we've seen in Isaiah are manyfold, right? We've seen a lot about God, but I think we can sort of, for the help of synopsis, we can, we can really divide them into two categories. The, mad, the might of God and the mercy of God. The might of God and the mercy. And you notice that we've named the series The Might and the Mercy of God. We, I totally stole that from the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Yes, you're familiar with this, Holy, Holy, Holy. Merciful and mighty, Right? And so we have learned that God is both mighty and he is merciful throughout the book. And we've seen that theme played out over and over again. So what I'd like to do today is just remind us, if I could, about the different things that we mean when we say God is mighty and the different things that we mean, according to Isaiah, when we say that God is merciful. And, you know, if you're like me, I cannot stand sort of empty cliches. I do not like it when people make arguments uh, for things and then they're, they're sort of dislodged from reality or they're not backed up by fact. They're not clearly and, and sort of cogently argued for. I don't like it when someone assumes that I should know the content behind the statement they've made without clarifying what that content is. And essentially what Isaiah has been doing for us, he's been saying God is mighty and God is merciful and now I'm gonna fill those categories with content for you so that you're not just forced to think in sort of broad general ideas about what does it mean that God is mighty and what does it mean that God is merciful and then sort of you know, dab some kind of colloquialism on top of that and say, well, that, that's what it means. No, Isaiah has been determined to fill those categories with content for us so that we would go, oh, when I say God is mighty, 
I mean God is mighty, and it means this, and it means this, and it means this. That's what we're gonna look at today. We've touched on all these things throughout the last 11 months, so I'm not gonna spend incredible amounts of time unpacking each of these. I'm hoping that sort of brought all together in a, in a summation, we will feel again the power of God's might and his mercy. And then at the end of our time, as I said, what, I, what I'd like to do is offer a few ideas of application. What does this mean for us? If I say I follow a God who's mighty and who's merciful, what does that mean about how then shall I live if this is true of God? So we'll look at that together. We good? Is that good? All right, awesome. So if you got your Bible, you can open with me to Isaiah 6. That's where we'll start. We will have the words on the screen because we're gonna be jumping pretty quickly. So again, our question is, when we say God is mighty, what do we mean? Well, the first thing that we mean, if you got the sermon notes, you can fill these in. The first thing that we mean is found in Isaiah chapter 6. We mean the essence of his being is something different than ours. In Isaiah 6, you remember the vision that Isaiah had of the Lord in his temple. And he says this in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now you remember that in response to this vision, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. I'm going to die, right, is the summary of his statement. God purifies him, says, you're not gonna die. I have a message for you. But the thing I wanna point your attention to here is what the angels are crying out as they fly around the throne of God. And it's that word, holy. When the angels use that word, right? And when Isaiah says, I had a vision of the Lord and he was high and lifted up, it doesn't just mean that he was glorious. What Isaiah is saying is he was something completely other than what I am. When I glimpsed this God, I saw the nature of a being who is unlike any other being who has ever or will ever exist. And when the angels declare that he is holy, remember that that word in its very root carries something like the idea of being set apart cut off from all other things. In other words, to declare that something is holy is to declare that it is wholly other from something else. And so when we use the word holy in reference to God, what we are saying is that he is, we are, well, what we are doing is we are approaching the very edge of descriptive language. We have approached the place where we can come and this is the most we can say and now we cannot go beyond it because what we are essentially saying is to say God is holy is to say God is holy other than all other things in existence and therefore essentially it is to say that the only way to define the parameters of this God is to say he is God. He is holy. He is other set apart in moral majesty and purity. This is the key revelation in all of Isaiah. The thing that we've seen is that Isaiah's argument is that every problem in all of the created world roots in the idea that we have too low a concept of the God who made us. Every problem in all of humankind stems from that original problem. Your view of God is too small. 
It is too menial. It is too low. And Isaiah is determined to say, do you see the might of this God that he is holy other than all other things? He is worthy of your adoration because there is nothing and no one like him. No one will ever approach him. He is, in one word, holy. The first thing that we see that we mean when we say that God is mighty is that the essence of his being is unlike the essence of every other being. The second thing that we've seen in Isaiah when we say that God is mighty, to give content to that concept, is that he can make it so that obedience leads to thriving and disobedience is destructive for us. Obedience leads to thriving and disobedience is destructive for us. Now you might think, how does that apply to the idea of him being mighty? Well, just look at Isaiah chapter one and let me explain myself to you. In Isaiah 1, verse 19, God says this to his people. He says, if you are willing and obedient, right? So there's that word, obedient. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I love, first of all, I just love the illusory. I love the language there because he's saying you will eat the good of the land if you obey, but the sword will eat you if you do not obey. Do you see the kind of, he's just turning it on its head. The point that Isaiah is making for us is this. God is so strong that he is able to make it so that any creature, any being, any person who will commit themselves to him, follow him and be obedient to him will experience thriving and flourishing. But all those who will oppose him will experience destructive forces in their life. Throughout the book, he's referred to all these foreign gods, worshiped by all these foreign nations. And the thing that he says to Israel again and again is, you don't have to worry. The very thing that they worship is going to consume them. The worship of something other than me is destructive to the human soul. How do I know that? I made the human soul. And I am strong enough, I am mighty enough to make it so that all people who walk in and are obedient to me will experience the flourishing and the thriving of that, if not in the short term, certainly in the long. And all those who fail to do so will ultimately experience the destructive forces of uh, their own choices of gods, the things that they worship. A being who can set the parameters of life like that, would you say that's a mighty being? The third thing that we mean when we say that God is mighty, according to Isaiah, is that he controls the events of all people through all history. We saw this demonstrated in this uh, historical event that gets inserted right into the middle of the book where King Hezekiah has the, the king of Assyria and his army at his gates and Sennacherib's the king of Assyria and he's taunting the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. He's already conquered many other cities the people are frightened to say the least. They are hanging on by a thread. Hezekiah is hanging on by a thread. And God is declaring to them, you can trust me. You can trust me. You, you recall this as we studied. Trust me. Though the army be at the gates, trust me. In Isaiah 37, just to kind of, I mean, there's so much to that story, but here's what I wanted to point out from it. In Isaiah 37, Verse 26 and 27, this is God's response to the mocking king of Assyria, Sennacherib, who has basically told uh, Hezekiah and told all the people through one of his generals, told them, don't trust 
in what Hezekiah is telling you. Hezekiah is telling you God's gonna deliver you. Don't trust him. God has sent me to conquer you is essentially what he's saying. And he is mocking God and mocking his people. And here's God's response to Sennacherib. In verse 26, he says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like the plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Now what is God saying there? He's talking to a foreign king who has never acknowledged his existence, claimed to love him or follow him in any way. In fact, we're gonna see later, he worships another God called Nisroch and In all those claims and all that arrogance, what is God saying to him? I'm the one who is causing you to do all the things that you have done. All those cities you conquered, all those nations you're in charge of now, that's because of me, because I'm working out my purposes in the world. Remember that one of the things that we saw throughout our study of Isaiah is that one of the reasons God's peoples don't have to fret is because God is in control of all that happens in the earth. And he uses even the wicked to accomplish his purposes. One of the things that happened again and again in Isaiah is that God's people were... were God judged them and disciplined them through the use of people more wicked than they were. That's a challenging concept, yes? It's a challenging concept, but it is plain and simple in the book of Isaiah that that's clearly something God has done and continues to do. Now recognize that God is in control of all earthly events. It's challenging, right? We've seen the challenges of that when it comes to thinking about the existence of evil in the world, when it comes to the existence of tragedy in the world. We've seen that, but what we've also seen is that God declares that I am big enough to have reasons for the things that you do not understand. Your job is to trust me. Not to declare that if I can't comprehend why you would allow something or do something, that therefore you shouldn't have done it. God's declaration is to say, I will do what I will do, and I'm mighty enough to work out my purposes. Your job is to do what, church? It's to trust the trust. This is how mighty God is. He declares to foreign kings, oh, you thought, you thought you worshiped another God. I am ruling over all your activities and you didn't even know. The next thing we see that kind of fills this, the content of this category of the might of God is that we see from Isaiah that he has no rival in power. So we just read those verses from, uh, about the king of Assyria. Uh, just a few verses earlier, In verse 23 of chapter 37, he says this to the same king. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. You see holiness there, again, used as a concept for his might. You have raised a rebellion against me and I am not one to be trifled with. The conclusion of this, if you remember, if you look down again in the same chapter, chapter 37, verses 36 and 37. Here's the conclusion of the story with the army of Assyria. 
And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Ezrahaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the irony of the closing of that story is that while worshiping in the temple of his very God, which should be the safest place, the place where this God most rules and reigns, the place where his, is the center of his strength, what happens to this worshiper of this false God? He is struck down by his own sons in the temple of his God. The irony of that is God is saying, I am in charge. No one rivals my power. So when we say he controls everything, that's one sort of concept of saying generally, right, God's in charge of all that occurs. But even more specifically, when we say that God is mighty, what we mean is that there is no time at which God looks at the kings of the earth, the power brokers of our world, and at any time thinks they are a real threat to my authority. I am really nervous that this person might be able to overthrow my power and accomplish something that somehow I don't intend or want to happen. God has never thought that for one moment. He has no rivals to his power. The next thing that we see that Isaiah means when he says our God is mighty is that he says he is able to fill a broken creation with his glory. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Isaiah chapter six again, just going back to the same verses that we looked at. He is able to fill a broken creation with his glory. Forgive me, I flip back to Ecclesiastes chapter six. That's too far. In Isaiah chapter six, verse three, the angels again call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But then look at the next line. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now that's an interesting thing for angels to say because we've seen in the Bible since Genesis chapter three, we are living in a shattered world that every aspect of our world encounters sin. And in fact, if you remember, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that there's a reason God is going to do something new in the future about this world, that something is going to change because he doesn't intend for it to always be this way. So what does it mean when God can declare that this is a world broken and touched by sin in every aspect, every thought of every human heart, every part of the created order and world is touched and affected by sin. It is less than what is originally intended to be, intended to be broken and shattered. But this God that we worship is so mighty that in spite of that fact, God has not had to say, whoa, okay, this is a broken world, so now I'm gonna have to become some kind of a deist kind of a God, back up, away from my creation, keep my hands off of it, and then at some point in the future, I'll come and figure out what I'm gonna do with it. But because it's so broken and sinful now, there's nothing I can do with it. I'll just have to wait it out or figure out how to work out a plan over a long period of time. No, in spite of that fact, the might of God means that he can fill a broken creation with his glory, that his glory can actually inhabit, take residence, take up residence in and enter into a broken and shattered world. That's a powerful God. 
that he is able to enter in. Now let me ask this question. Are you a part of the created order that's being talked about here in Isaiah chapter six? The whole earth is filled with his glory in such a way that we can look at the stars and the blades of grass, everything from the human heart to the mud on the ground, and we can say to ourselves, this is a place designed by a God of majesty, by a God of great might. It is full, pregnant with his glory so that he can be seen and displayed in it. What kind of God do we worship? How much power and strength must he have to be able to fill a broken, destitute world with glory to the degree that people can still look and behold him in it? That's a mighty God. The next thing we see about the might of God revealed by Isaiah is that he is able to, now just to take that to the next step, right? He is able to make a new heaven and a new earth of perfect righteousness. And we studied this just, you know, last week, right? In Isaiah 65, verse 17, when he says, behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Part of what it means that God is mighty is that he does not just redeem people and then say, I will rescue them out of the world and bring them to where I am. That would be reason and cause for celebration enough of his might to say, what a God that he can remove people from a sin-stained world and make them whole and bring them into his presence, we would have to say, that's a strong God. But as if to say, oh, you haven't even seen the half of it. God declares, not only will I remove a people from myself, for myself, I will remake the whole thing. I will in my strength not just say, well, that's broken and a lost cause and therefore I'll just get some people out of it and take them to myself. No, no, no. I will fix it all. Make it new, perfectly righteous. There will no longer be any hint of, or taint of sin again in the world. That's what he declares. That's remarkable. Our God is mighty. He can create a new heaven and a new earth. The last thing that we'll say for our purposes, and we could say so much more, the last we'll say is Isaiah 25, verse seven and eight. Look at it with me. Here's what it says. Again, talking about this new heaven and this new earth. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So of course the natural question having read that is to go, what is the veil? What is the covering that's gonna get swallowed up? And the next verse is gonna answer that question. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth and I love how he ends it for the Lord has what spoken now look I, around my house sometimes I try and put my foot down right this is the way it's gonna be all right enough discussion no more questioning dad has said that works sometimes and doesn't work sometimes too, right? But when the Lord says, I have spoken, right? How did God create the world? He spoke it into existence. When God speaks, things happen. In fact, what happens is whatever he said, 
Not a little shade of what he said, not kinda, sorta what he said. When God speaks, exactly what he has spoken comes into existence. And the Lord ends this little section of verses saying, I have spoken. Death will be swallowed up. Now, I don't know a better image than that. Do you know a better image than that? Just imagine Pac-Man, you know, just swallowing up death. It will be no more. This is a mighty God. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but this is a great transition to the mercy of God because did you see how the might and the mercy of God come together in this text? Some, this is just some of my favorite in all of Isaiah. Death will be swallowed up. That's power. And then the very next phrase, and he will wipe away the tear from every eye. As if to say, not only am I so grand and big and strong that I can take this thing that no one else can undo, this death that has plagued every human being for all kind, the thing that no one has been able to figure out how to get out of, I'm gonna swallow it up like it's a bite of food and swallow it and be done with it. And then after doing something that grand and big, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna reach down with the thumb of my finger, I'm gonna wipe the tear from your cheek. I'm gonna descend and put myself so close and intimate with you that you are gonna feel the touch of my fingertips against your skin. That tear that rolls down your cheek, I will just wipe it away. This is the mercy of our God. Oh, and they go together so beautifully, don't they? Oh, to have a God that is this mighty and this merciful. Now let's talk about the mercy of our God. What do we mean when we say that God is merciful? Uh, a few things. In Isaiah chapter 12, he gives us a concept, a, a, a thought about the mercy of God. When he says in verse one and two of chapter 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. One of the things we mean when we say that God is merciful, we mean he is willing to turn his anger away from us. He's willing to turn his anger away from us. We've seen rightly that God is angry with sin and sinners like us. So the question becomes, is there any way out from the anger and the wrath of God? And here we have a hint at it. He is willing. In other words, he doesn't have to have a gun held to his back to say, you will do this. He is willing to turn his anger away from us. But now another question falls on the heels of that and we might ask, how else does he display his mercy? And the next thing we see is that he is not just willing, but he is eager to show favor to us. He is eager to show favor to us. Do you remember Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18? This is one of them that just stuck with me throughout our entire study of this book when the Lord said this. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Isn't that a great image? 
he waits eagerly to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Uh, Memorize that one, right? If you're into tattoos, get it tattooed on your body. All right? The Lord waits to be gracious. In other words, the question might be, okay, he's willing, but is he indifferent, right? You've been willing to do something, but somewhat indifferent about it before, yes? You've probably been, I'll do it. I don't care that much about doing, but I'll do it. And that might be the question, right? Is God willing, but perhaps, you know, somewhat indifferent? And here, in Isaiah, he goes, no, 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 no. He's not just willing, he's eager to show his favor to you. So much so that he just, he just waits for you to turn to him. Just, just the slightest hint of a turn. Oh, I wanna show you mercy. I'm waiting eagerly to do it. Part of what we mean when we say that God is merciful is that he is eager to show favor. The next thing we see is that what it means that God is merciful is that he has made it possible for his anger to be turned away from us. So someone might ask the question, okay, he's willing, that's good. He's eager, that's good. But is he able to do it? And we saw in Isaiah 53, the pinnacle of this entire book, really, right on the heels of chapter six, 53. Those are kind of the two triumphant moments of all of Isaiah. And we saw that God has not just been willing and not just been eager, but he has made a way for his wrath to be poured out on someone other than us. Isaiah 53, verses four through six, they're so rich, we just have to read them again. It says this, surely, speaking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. He is not just willing, he is not just eager. To say that God is merciful is to know that he has made a way for his wrath and anger towards sin to be poured out, but not on us. The next thing we mean when we see that God is merciful is we say that he saves people who have hated him and makes them his children. He saves people who have hated him and makes them his children. Another way to say that is he turns enemies into kids. Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23 says this, turn to me and be saved. Who? Who is that directed to? Really moral people? Turn to me and be saved. Really kind people. Turn to me and be saved. People from this nation or that nation. Turn to me and be saved. People who are really self-righteous. Turn to me and be saved. How does he fill in the blank? All the ends of the what, church? Of the earth. In other words, one of the things that we see that tells us what does it mean that God is merciful? It means that he is not just willing. He is not just eager. He has not just made a way. He has said, I have made a way for anyone from any place who will come. Everyone is welcome. My mercy is for all. 
one of the key things that we are supposed to get as we went through the book of Isaiah is how dead set God seemed to be to get a redeemed people from every people group. That it seemed like he was, did you catch that as we went through the book? And it challenges all of our all of our tendencies to dislike those who are not like us, who come from other ethnic backgrounds or other races, and it just was meant to turn those upside down and to say, don't you see that I am, I want people from everywhere. I'm dead set on having this. I'm gonna make it happen. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth. Come and have mercy. That's what it means that he is merciful. It means that he seeks to comfort us with his might. Isaiah chapter 40, verse one and two. I love this because it was a turning point in the book. We had just come out of a section where a lot of hard things had been happening. God's people had been under judgment. And then his very next word in Isaiah chapter 40, verse one and two is comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, here's what I especially love. I'm not gonna read all of chapter 40, but that first verse is the theme verse for the rest of the chapter when he's saying, I want to comfort my people. But if you remember what he does in the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 is he spends the entire chapter talking about how strong and big and mighty he is. Now, why would he do that? Because what he wants his people to know is, oh, I wanna comfort you. Guess how I'm gonna comfort you? By reminding you that you serve a God who is perfectly mighty. And therefore you can, rather than be afraid of that reality, you can take comfort from it. Because nothing is outside my control. Nothing is outside my work. I am, I am working on your behalf. You can trust me. So one of the demonstrations of God's mercy is that he actually uses his might to comfort us and so that we might experience his mercy. His might is used to accomplish mercy for his people. There is no one like him. People who are mighty use their might to show might, to win things for themselves, not this God. He is so mighty that he uses his might to get mercy for those he loves. He is remarkable. We've seen that his mercy means not just that, but that his mercy means he is gentle with us when we are beaten up by life. Now I'm gonna move real fast through these last couple here. He is gentle with us when we are beaten up by life. Do you remember that in Isaiah 42, three, he says, speaking of Jesus, a broken reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He will not extinguish. I love that because what it's saying is, God's mercy means that when you are beaten up by life, he knows how to be gentle with you. He knows when you're exhausted and exasperated and it's just all too much. He knows when you're bruised. He knows when you're like, I've got no flame left. He says, "I, I will not snuff that out. I will come and reignite your flame with gentleness. God's mercy means that he invites us to come to him. You remember in Isaiah 55, verses one through three, when he says, come, come, those who need food, come and have it at no cost, right? Those who need drink, come and have it at no cost to yourself. Now, here's what I love about that. Here's the mercy of God. It would be one thing to be invited to a party, but not know you were invited, and so you wouldn't be sure if you could come. You might be thinking like, I don't know if if I show up, if I'm gonna get tossed out or not. 
And the host would just assume, well, of course, they should know they're invited, right? But God doesn't do that. God doesn't just say, you should assume that you know that, you're, that you can come to the house. He says, I'm gonna go out of my way to extend an invitation to you so that you know you can come. How do I know that I can show up? How do you know when you wake up tomorrow and you, you go to pray that God is not gonna cast you out of his presence and say, you fool, how dare you approach me? I am a holy God. How do you know? Because he's invited you to come because he's covered you with the blood of his son, Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, we're told that we can approach the throne of God with boldness. That's the most asinine statement that's ever been made unless it's made by God. Who approaches the throne of a God like this with boldness? No one, unless God has invited you to come and made you able to come. And that's exactly what God has done in Jesus. He has invited and he has made you able to come. And now he says, you can come with boldness. Ask for things you need. Call upon my name. Take hold of me and wrestle with me and do not let go until I answer your prayers. The mercy of God, last thing. The mercy of God means that he shares our heartache. You remember in chapter 63, verse nine, he says, an important text, in all their affliction, talking about his people, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. In other words, we talked about this, right? Who can afflict God? Who can do damage to God? No one, right? So what this means is not they afflicted his people and therefore it somehow harmed him. It means that he willingly shared the heartache of their affliction with them, that he entered it into, the, into it with them. The mercy of God means that he shares your heartache. He is not emotionally indifferent. He is not standing at a distance and saying, you know what, I'm in charge, don't worry about it. It'll all work out in the end. You just, just trust me. But that he enters into your heartache with you. This is the might of God. This is the mercy of God. There's no one like him, amen, church? All right, before we sing, I, I was gonna give you some applications, but more important than that, with the time that we have, what I'd like to do is I wanna give you one minute because there's all kinds of implications, right? We've touched on them. Trust God. If God's inviting people from every people group in every nation, then it means that, that we need to be telling people about the might and mercy of God. It needs, means that we need to put away tendencies to, towards hate and frustration with people who are not like us if God wants people from every people group. It means that if God is holy, it means that we need to pursue personal righteousness, but it also means that we need to be pursuing the healing of our society and bringing justice to the vulnerable because a holy God doesn't say, just be personally holy. He says, work to bring my kingdom into the world. That's part of my, my working for justice in the world is part of my holiness on display. So you, my people, work for change in the public sphere. Don't just limit yourself to personal holiness, but also don't work for change in the public sphere and then excuse all your misdoings and your sin in private as if, well, I'm doing all these good things, so it really doesn't matter that I'm doing all these things that displease God behind closed doors that no one sees. He says, no, you are to be about your personal holiness and righteousness and, and about justice in the world. There's implication after implication, but the question that comes to you from God's spirit today Knowing this, what has to change? What's he inviting you to change? 
Let's be still before the Lord. I'll ask the worship team to come and they'll prepare us. We're gonna sing to close our time, but I just wanna give you 30 seconds to a minute now to be quiet and still before the Lord and to ask him that question. Lord, I wanna be a doer of your word, not just a hearer. So what needs to change? I'm listening. And just see what he puts there. No preacher can tell you that. I cannot tell you what God's gonna plant in your heart right now, but he has a word for you. He wants to bring it to mind. He wants to bring it to you. Perhaps he's been working it up, kind of from down here up throughout the course of this entire sermon. So let's listen. Let me pray, and then let's be still. So Lord, we just wanna be still before you. We've been listening to the reading of your word and explanation of it. But now what we'd ask, Holy Spirit, is that you take that and that you'd apply it into us now. We're listening. We just wanna be still and wait and ask you, what must change? Because we now know and have been reminded of these truths from Isaiah over the last 11 months. We want to be doers of your word, not just hearers. So we're listening now, Lord. We wait for you.